My lawyer works there, Ben suddenly says from his child's seat as we're driving on Queens Boulevard. Thankfully, I do not steer the car into a lamppost, though it takes effort. We're in Kew Gardens, which, like Jamaica, contains a complex of Queens County courthouses and bail bond agents. Uh, How's that, buddy? He points to a mirrored building. She works there. She's nice. Mommy told me. Within minutes, I'm calling Hillary. Yes, my attorney explains. Judge Westfall will appoint a law guardian to represent Ben's interests, as well as a forensic psychologist to interview all parties. But Hillary wasn't notified yet of selections. I advise her she's too late. The other team already met Ben's lawyer. On Friday morning, while Ben is with Katie, we all meet inside that mirrored building. Plaintiff, defendant, attorneys. Her newest lawyer, Joy, seems like her dimmest, but underestimating is a fatal mistake. Joy's office is two floors below, and unlike Hillary, she's immersed in the Queen's legal universe. My heart thumps when I overhear her refer to Judge Westfall, not as Rhonda, but as Ronnie. The guardian's door opens, and a woman escorts us inside. I shake hands with Ben's counsel. Then she and Joy spend three minutes reminiscing about the wedding of a judicial assistant last weekend and the drunken fountain dancing taking place in the wee hours. Hillary smiles awkwardly. Finally, the meeting begins, and Ben's law guardian explains to Helen, uh, no, sorry, it's Hillary, to Hillary and Mr. McMullen, she wants only what's best for Benjamin and has no personal stake. Her role is to be an impartial and unbiased advocate for the child. An hour later, Hillary and I enter a small coffee shop, and already I feel sick. As she eats, I impulsively ask about her twin boys, since I know very little. Hillary explains her husband, working from home, is the primary caregiver. Then I bluntly ask how her marriage is, and she says she knows far too much to ever contemplate divorce. By 3 p.m., I've walked two blocks further into Kew Gardens to a building saturated with names suffixed with ESQ. I find the office of the forensic psychologist, the man appointed by the court to evaluate us all. He welcomes me in, then asks if I mind Leon the parrot chirping in a cage atop the very sofa I'm to occupy. Actually, I do mind, but what can I say? As we settle in, he reports Joy said this morning's meeting went well. Joy, you refer to the defendant's attorney by first name? Although he had a droopy face, he flares up. Is there a reason why I shouldn't? I shrug. He's a jackass with a droopy face, so from now on, he is Eeyore. He smiles, but isn't happy. So, Mr. Mullen, uh, how's that temper of yours? And there it is. Last year concluded a battle, not a war. It's full-on combat, and once again, I'm on defense. Clueless, sputtering, unsure. The official, apparachicks, all seem to know what I don't. The final abduction ruling was far from final. This bogus filing is far from bogus, and the whole nasty custody business is far from over. I have learned something. 
There's showing support, and then there's showing support. Just about everyone except the depraved rise to the occasion after a death. That first week, there are no limits to the kindnesses shown during the wake, the shiva, the enshrouding, the funeral, the cremation, the burial. Who needs a ride? Ironically, though, real support usually is needed later, after the ceremonies and food are finished. Long-haul battles are indeed wars of attrition, and quitting is more than an option. I've found quitting actually is the expectation. And don't believe Hollywood sagas. We're a bored and restless race, humans, and we want quick and uncomplicated solutions. Unfortunately, some struggles take years, or even lifetimes. The cancer returning and returning again. The trial when the accused keeps appealing. The addiction spiraling in endless circles and repetitions. The minor leaguer hanging in year after year. The missing in action, never coming home from battle. And now I've learned the custody fight, continuing and continuing. It would be impossible for me to persist without support. And my support has been my greatest beacon. My mother, my siblings, Paco, friends such as Sam and Mo and Annabelle. If not for them, Ben would have forgotten my face by now, pondering it in the dark of a kibitz. Few things in life are clear, yet I find critical support is an exception. I've allowed old friends to fall off me like scales, because true support is either given fully or not given at all. And many simply grow bored of such trials. Those of us at the center of these heartaches, we feel the impatience from you. We see it in the fraction of a second before eye contact is broken. We hear it in your, I see, comment. We read it when your mind makes itself clear without employing words. Words formed but not spoken. You're still obsessed with this? You haven't given up yet? Why not let it go? Don't you want it all to be over? Long ago, I stopped caring about those who can't or won't understand. And then there's the hardest concept of all to understand. Death. I've worked a day shift, and I turn onto our street and see it's completely blocked by emergency vehicles with flashing lights. NYPD, FDNY, EMS. My stomach constricts, and I back out and park a block away, then walk to where a crowd has gathered near the corner. Kids on bicycles are laughing. I scan the throng and, relief, spot my mother speaking to several neighbors. She shakes her head. Terrible, Mikey. I look to where a rubber yellow sheet covers the front of a Kia, then turn back. She nods. Jackie, that sweet, sweet man. No, I shout nonsensically. He always crossed at the green. Mrs. Ahern clucks. I guess God needed another angel up in heaven. He's already got plenty, I snap. What about us? Within hours, it's online. Arrest in Queen's text death. A distracted 19-year-old didn't realize the light was solid red 
until Jackie splattered onto his windshield. It's a world in which both the crimes and the punishments never seem anywhere near proportional to each other. I feel anguish and anger, then shame. My mother says to keep Jackie's mom in my thoughts and prayers. I tell her, I do thoughts, not prayers. Later, I picked up Ben and wait until he's in bed. Buddy, we need to talk about something, something sad. He picks up his blanket. Divorce? Uh, No. Someone died. Grandpa Tom? No. I'm stroking his blonde hair. It was Jackie, buddy. He did everything right. He crossed at the corner, waited for the green, but this person, he drove through the red light and he hit him. And Jackie died. So he's a bad person? I sigh. Well, that's the thing. He did a bad thing. A really bad thing, but I don't know. Maybe he's a good person. Good people can do bad things, buddy. You know, what the hell, LaGuardia? Somebody's got his head up his ass down there. Ben keeps picking. So God put Jackie in heaven? I nod. He's already had two years of temple tots, and he's on course for the Jewish path. Then there's Grandma Eileen sneaking him to St. Rita's and talk of heaven when she thinks I don't know. But I won't assail any beliefs. Not at this tender age. My Grandpa Al. Oh, should pray for him. Good idea. I'll tell him Jackie's name. Uncle Desmond, too. But we won't see Jackie anymore. No, we won't, buddy. I'm going to miss him, too. I knew him since I was a baby. We're quiet for a long time. Daddy? Yeah? Who's going to tell us they love us now? I pull him up for a hug. I guess we will. That's going to be our job now. Paco says Ben displays remarkable resiliency for a child his age, and I should be grateful. I am, even if I wish he didn't have to display such remarkable resiliency. I'm back in Kew Gardens, aimlessly lost on a Thursday evening, acting not like a native of Queens, but rather like the many flight attendants from Texas and California who double and triple up in crash pads and call it Crew Gardens. Ben is at her mother's for a few days, and I'm consciously trying to use time without him to address long-standing issues, squeezing in more sparring at Ring of Fire, inquiring about re-entering graduate school, and putting to rest a would-be relationship that doesn't want to rest. Once again, Gina contacted me, only this time she was somewhat businesslike in her tone. She fully understood I was focused on other things, but she would like to meet once, just once please, to clarify a few things. What could I say? So now I'm looking for the agreed-upon wine and cheese place near the school where she just landed a job teaching seventh grade English. Finally, I spot the joint, 
but of course, there are no open spaces. I spend another 10 or 12 minutes circling aimlessly. There comes a time in every New Yorker's life when you deliberately park where you know you'll get a ticket, though hopefully not get towed, because cumulatively, the fine is less than the aggravation. I squeeze the wagon in behind a minivan, but every inch of lovey from Ben's car seat to the trailer hitch is squarely in a bus stop. Gina's already there, of course, since I'm 15 minutes late. She's dressed in her teacher's yellow blouse and light summer skirt and looks more beautiful than ever. So beautiful, I actually stumble saying hello and repeat that I'm sorry for being late. We shake hands like it's a business deal, and I settle in and ask about the new gig. She's cautiously happy, but it's only summer school, and she hopes they ask her back in the fall. English, my favorite subject. She seems surprised. Really? A guy involved with airplanes? Sure. What novels are you going to have them read? Gina swirls her glass of wine. Good question. Huckleberry Finn has the N-word. Catcher in the Rye has the F-word. I proposed Alice Walker, and they laughed at me. All these insane book burners and Board of Ed freaks out there. And that's in decadent New York. She moves her shoulders as if literally shaking them off. Screw them. Next week, my kids will meet Atticus Finch. I raise a clenched fist. Preach. Then I ask, How's Ashley? Gina smirks. The one crying her little head off at 4 a.m. when Mommy has a new job? Cutting a tooth? Bingo. You're good, Mr. Mullen. I'll give you that. I'd love to meet her, I blurt out. I mean it, though I had no idea I would say it. Gina's reaction is a bit scary. She stares at me and stares, but says nothing. Long seconds pass, and then it's as if she returns, and she quietly asks how Ben is. He's hanging in there. I don't know how, but he is. She nods, and how are you doing? I sigh and tap the thick wine menu against my palm. That's my response. Oh, no. Let me guess. Your house burned down, right to the ground, or your horse died? Your big toe was amputated? Locusts? Frogs? The ten plagues? Am I close? I shrug. Pretty much. I've been demoted at work, and I'm back in court. She's fighting for custody. Again. Those gorgeous brown eyes grow even wider. You've got to be kidding me. After kidnapping a kid... Shouldn't she be in jail? Um, not according to Judge Westfall. All charges were dismissed. We're starting from scratch, rebooting. She could wind up with custody. Gina's face falls, and she can't hide her concern. Oh, Mike. I may be wrong, but it's as though her guard lowers a bit. I'm sorry. Thanks. So... It's still pretty much a mess. You don't look a mess. How are you coping? By punching a big heavy bag. I've taken up boxing. The waitress asks what we'll have and notes the lady's drinking Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. I order 
a tawny port. After she leaves, Gina smiles. Tawny port, huh? She seems to be teasing me, though maybe not. Like, I know anything about how women think. I stop myself. Why separate human beings by gender? How women think. What absurd, divisive crap. More pop bullshit to sell books and blogs and radio shows. Women think like men think, with their brains. And I'm being rude by not responding. I started drinking it when I lived in Iceland. You lived in Iceland? See, I didn't know that. When I was in the Air Force. She nods. Ah, well, thank you for your service. I groan. Oh, God, I hate that. Okay, then screw you. I'm not thanking you for your freaking service. I didn't ask you to join the Air Force. We laugh simultaneously, and it feels good. For a few seconds, we just look at each other and don't speak. But I have to plunge right in, right where the nexus of plus and minus is sweetest. It's the same ancient story, the oldest of all stories. Some hairy guy went off to slay a beast and came back, and another hairy guy was walking along with the hairy girl he liked. And they were giggling and pretending to give each other flats on the back of their hairy heels as they wandered down to the watering hole, occasionally stopping so one could bump a hip into the other one. And the universe sent a sharp blade into the beast slayer's chest. It's the pain that unites us all, even though each of us carries his or her own flavor. In my case, it's a story extending from Trisha Conlon at St. Reader's to a cashier at Carvel in high school, to three different classmates at Queens College, to Airman First Class Rebecca Becky Truman down in Dover, to right here at this table. That first time you see them holding hands in the cafeteria, getting into his car, slow dancing with him. It's the muscle reflex that never leaves you. And once again, I plunge. Was your boyfriend in the service? My boyfriend? The guy I saw you, your picture at, at Billy Joel. Oh, Gina says, I see. She takes a nice swig of Pinot Noir as the waitress delivers my port. I wonder how many she's had. School ended hours ago. No, she says finally. He's not the service type. He's more the type who uses every waking minute to make money. That type. I nod along. Well, he's pretty good looking from what I could see. She laughs, and I'm thinking maybe the fermented dark grapes are having an effect. You know, you guys are all too much, always comparing dick sizes. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Gina leans in. Okay, I'll just lay it out. He is pretty good looking, although, well, it's not like he has blue eyes. She smiles oddly at that and looks at mine. I scrunch my brow, but she's not done. And he seems pretty rich. I don't know how rich, but he's got one of those new apartments in Long Island City facing the river, and he drives this uh, Model 7 or something. I nod. 7 Series BMW. I think base price starts around 80K. Yeah, that's it. I keep nodding. Well, you must be pretty happy. Gina leans even closer and smiles at me. I really am. 
I'm quite happy. I fight to keep as blank a face as I can. I asked for it. Then she adds, especially since we broke up about two months ago. Something's happening now, though I can't really identify it. It's not external, it's inside me. And I don't think it's a nuts and bolts issue. Nothing related to cardiac or pulmonary or digestive. Nothing having to do with the many, many intricate moving parts that keep the show on the road. But it's happening. Somewhere deep inside me, something is opening. And I know it's real. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that, I tell her. And I break into a huge grin. She holds up her glass to our kids. I clink. And their lucky parents. We both drink in silence, and I decide for once not to fill the void. In an odd way, it feels nice. But eventually, Gina shifts nervously, crosses one exquisite leg over the other, and nods at me. So here's the deal. I mean, why I called you. It's actually about this guy. I want to tell you the story. I've got a half glass of port and a car that might very well be on the business end of an NYPD tow truck. Where am I going? So last summer, you said you were going to call me, and then you didn't. And then last fall, you said you were going to call me, and you didn't. And then around the holidays, I asked you out, since, you know, it's not 1952 and all. But anyway, you blew me off. So far, I'm right. Now it's my turn to shift nervously. Uh, well, I... It's okay. Really. It is, Mike. I'm not busting chops. Just setting it up, okay? I don't respond, and she continues. So anyway, it's not like I have to go out with someone. I've gone years not dating. It's not like uh, a need. But then this guy came along. I met him at my friend's wedding on New Year's Eve. He asked me out, and I went. And yeah, he was good-looking. And yeah, he had bucks, like I give a crap. And, well, he was nice enough in some ways. But I simultaneously signal the waitress and lean in as I observe, there's always a but. Then I ordered another round and sit back. Gina nervously jiggles that exquisite limb. So anyway, I was bugged about something. Not at first, I mean. Eventually. What? Well, after, like, the second date, I asked him if he wanted to meet Ashley. And he was mm, kind of weird. The first time he said it was too early. The next time, it was some bullshit about making it more special by waiting. Like, huh? Sounds like Ben's mother. When she's not with him, she only calls him once a week to make it more special. Gina looks horrified. That's terrible. Then she drains the rest of her Pinot Noir because the waitress is delivering the fresh round. We both thank her. Anyway, so I kept going out with him. 
and he's always making these big plans. Let's take a cruise. Let's go to Mardi Gras. After one date, he wants me to go to Guadalupe. I'm like, why Guadalupe? And he's like, there's a place with a topless beach. You'd love it. I mean, who asks someone to fly to a topless beach on the second date? Not that I have a problem being around topless people, but he doesn't know that. Not cool, I concur. And he's got all this money, and yet he's a shitty tipper, which is also not cool. I mean, I don't mean to dump on him, but that's something I hate. I worked as a waitress, and I remember when we had iced tea at the courthouse, and I saw you gave the waitress like a 30% tip, and I'm thinking, this guy is filing bankruptcy, but he's tipping waitresses. Actually, I clarify, I had lemonade. Gina laughs. See, that's the type of geeky thing you do. Normally, that would drive me crazy. Somebody saying something like that. But you say it, and it's cute. She shakes her head. So anyway, after two months of this, he invites me out to dinner at this place in Harlem, the Cecil. Hard to get a table. Big, big deal. And I just want to settle this thing. Get to the bottom of it, you know? So I get dressed up, and he picks me up on Queens Boulevard. He had this thing about not coming to my apartment. We drive into the city, and I'm thinking about that Frank Sinatra song about taking shiny cars to Harlem. So we get there, and I order half a lobster. What the hell, right? I nod, right. And so we're having a drink, and I say to him, I don't want to pressure you. I really don't. But I'm a little hurt. You don't want to meet Ashley. I mean, she and I are a team, you know, and we can do whatever you want, you know, very cash, just swing by the apartment or meet in the park or have lunch, just so the ice is broken. Gina takes another healthy quaff. So you know what he says? Huh? He says, you know that song Jersey Girl by Springsteen? And so, of course, I tell him, it was written by Tom Waits, not Bruce. Although, I put in, Bruce did add a verse. She grins, and for the first time since we shook hands, she makes physical contact by reaching out and patting my bare forearm. Exactly. So anyway, he says, well, it's like in that song. And I say, what are you talking about? And he says, well, that line about taking that little brat of yours and dropping her off at your mom's. That's kind of how I'd like it to stay with us. And he just smiles at me. I get it, and I'm a bit stunned. And I mutter, what a dick. Exactly, agrees Gina. What a dick. I feel like somebody punched me in the heart. So I'm really just done, you know. I never gave a crap about BMWs and all that. I'm just done. And I call the waiter over and I say, can you give us separate checks? So I paid for half a freaking lobster I never ate. And I didn't have the teaching job yet. So basically, I ate ramen noodles for a week. And of course, he's yapping about how he'll pay for it and don't do this and don't overreact and he'll drive me home. And I'm like, no. I'm leaving. 
You're not dropping me on Queens Boulevard. Goodbye. Wow, I shake my head. I don't know what to say. Gina sips, then shrugs. What can you say? So now it's 10 o'clock at night in Harlem, and I'm looking for the 2 train, but instead I wind up on the B train, whatever. And finally I get on the subway, and I sit down in my black dress and my best heels from Zappos, and I just start crying. I mean, really crying. And I don't cry that much, but I'm bawling. Have you ever cried on the subway? I think of the Clarendon ad the day Ben was born. Yep. And finally, I act first and reach across and squeeze her hand. And so I'm crying away, and all of a sudden, there's a Kleenex in my lap. And, and I mean, I didn't even see her. This old lady next to me looked like a Jewish bubba from Rigo Park or Forest Hills up in Harlem at night. She says to me, he ain't worth it, honey. And that's when it hits me, you know. And I say to her, no, he is worth it. He really is. Gina looks at me, and I'm not afraid to say I'm confused. I'm not talking about the dick. I forgot about him a block away from the restaurant. I suddenly realize I'm crying over this other guy this dorky guy. You won't believe this guy. You know what he did? All I could do is shake my head and drink. This guy is such a dork. He walks into a topless bar and he sits down with a half-naked woman who's spilling out of her clothes. And then he pulls out pictures of his toddler. Those eyes are dancing. Can you believe it? That thing that opened inside me earlier, now I know what it calls itself. I managed a small grin. I bet she was hot. Gina waves me off. She was okay, but this dork, I mean, he's been driving me crazy. He was married to someone out of a fucking Stephen King novel. Excuse my fucking language. I'd like to smash her, the number she did to this guy. I mean... He's wrapped up tighter in a damn mummy. And, yeah, and after two years, two, he remembers my daughter's name, you know? Her voice breaks, and Gina gulps hard, swallowing air. But she continues, and he even said he wants to meet her. And I've been dying to meet his kid. I mean... So he's the guy I was crying about on the subway, you know? Crying over some dorky, clueless guy. I'm floating around above the table now. I don't really feel I'm at the table any longer. I see. I nod and squeeze that hand. So what did the bubba say? Gina barks out a laugh. She said, honey... Some things we have to do for ourselves. Then this beautiful woman leans in and looks right into me. So now you know, Michael Mullen, why I asked you here. I sit up straight. I get it. She looks at me, then 
at the candle flickering off our faces. It's as if she sees it for the first time. Quickly, she runs her left hand over the flame, as if to test its potential to burn. She turns back to me. Here's the part where you tell me how you just remembered you've got that thing. And then you race out of here. See ya. For some reason, I run my hand over the candle as well. Only I'm much more aggressive and the flame actually does singe me a bit. Not that I care. Listen to me, I say. She looks and we lock eyes. Listen. I'm listening. You've got to understand what you're doing. I mean, you can say a lot of things about me, but you can't say I'm not being honest. I'm being brutally honest. The thing is, no woman wants to hear this. Some of them would throw their wine in my face. But Ben, he has to come first, for now, until all this insanity stops. I'm sorry, but it has to be like that. Adults fuck up their own damn lives, but kids, we don't have the right to fuck up their lives. I mean, any more than we will anyway, but we can't intentionally. I believe that if you have a kid, then the kid comes first. She nods. Duh, that's what makes you Mike Mullen. Why do you think I'm here? But his mother, you've got to understand, I have no idea what these courts are going to do. I thought everything was good, and it's not. It just goes on and on. And she could take him anywhere. Indiana, Israel, the moon. And I'd have to go right after them. That's just the way it is. Not forever, but for now. A small grin starts at the corner of Gina's mouth. I love travel. It could be for a while. They have elementary schools everywhere. I shake my head. She, she's just not getting it. Jesus, Gina, it could be freaking Australia, where the water flushes counterclockwise, just like here. She pretends she's singing a non-existent song. We shrimp on the Barbie. Ashley and I aren't kosher. No! I look up in embarrassment at the next table. You're just saying stuff like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I appreciate it. I, I really do. More than you'll know. I think about you constantly, all the time. I'll be sitting there and I'll be wondering what you're doing. I breathe deeply. You have no idea how much I want to be with you. A soft sigh escapes, and she whispers, finally. But this is real. I mean, you should know this is my fucked up life. Those brown eyes have never looked bigger, and she leans in so they grow even larger. You know something? I don't think your life is half as fucked up as you think it is. She lets that sink in, then adds, I bet Ben doesn't think so either. Now all I can do is sigh. And slowly, as slowly as that dangerous molecular solid 
known as ice, eventually breaks down to a less ordered state and therefore fails to pose a deadly threat to aviators the world over, as slowly as that, I melt. Don't say you weren't warned. Do I look scared? She asks. We'll see. And then, not like a woman who spends time with seventh graders, but rather like a woman who spends time with preschoolers, Gina sticks out her tongue at me and laughs a silly yet sexy laugh. You know, there's a psychological term for you, Mr. Mullen. It's called being a double cocky duty head. No, a triple cocky duty head. Triple, I cry. The ice breaks and I soar. I know you are, but what am I? Your face and my butt. Well, I happen to be made of an elastic substance, I inform her, and you happen to be made of an adhesive substance. So therefore, with one hand, she reaches out and strokes my cheek, while with the other, she knocks back the very last of her Pinot Noir, then she slams the empty glass down. Okay, that's settled. Now, I've got to get home. Ashley's asleep, but I've got to correct papers. I'm paying for your tawny port. Then you can point me toward the E-train. I frown. Negative. Number one, I'm paying. And number two, I'm taking you home. My car is a little less than 80K. I mean, blue book. But at least it's made in the USA. She runs her tongue over her teeth in contemplation. You can pay, but only if I pay next time. And you don't have to drive me. Actually, I do. You're not taking the subway, not on my watch, and you're not getting dropped on fucking Queens Boulevard. She pauses for a moment. Then her answer is that full-blown Gina smile, the one I haven't seen all night. Okay, sir. After the waitress thanks us effusively, we walk to my car. On one side of the street, I'm on her left, closer to the curb, and on the other side, I'm on her right, again, closer to the curb, just as my mother advised me. Miraculously, Lovey hasn't been towed, nor ticketed, nor molested in any way. I open Gina's door for her, and as I round the rear of the wagon, I see her lean over to open my door, also something my mother advised me about. And this tiny gesture, incredible as it may sound, brings me more peace and joy than I've known in a very long time. While I'm double-parked outside her building, we agree to reboot this whole hot mess and start with a tabula that is rasa. We're going to meet in two weeks on a Saturday, which happens to be the day after I'm scheduled for a rematch in the ring with Hugo Concepcion, but I don't tell her that. I'm hoping I don't show up for this date with two black eyes. Yet, I have a feeling it won't matter. I walk Gina to the glass doors, and we wait while her mother buzzes. I consider kissing her, but I decide not yet. Instead, we hug. Say hi to Boo Radley, I tell her. Arthur Radley, she corrects.